0: The go.
1: Where am I to go, meet Johnny? Where am I to go? For I'm
0: a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?
1: Welcome to Where Am I to Go podcast. I am so grateful you have chosen to listen to me and to go on the travels and see the things and go to the museums that we have managed to go through for the last two seasons. I have really enjoyed doing this podcast, and I hope you stick with me. It makes me happy to know that people are enjoying what I do. On another note, I want to make sure that everybody knows that we are on Facebook at Where Am I To Go Podcast. We have lots of pictures. We have places that we go that we don't do podcasts on. And we have lots of things to see and think about when you decide you're going to travel or if you're just interested in learning about different places that we go. Also, we have an email account at podcast at gmail.com. And if anybody has any comments, ideas, thoughts, you are more than welcome to email me there. And I will do my best to answer. And we'll see where everything goes this season. I've got some neat things lined up. And I hope everybody is ready to go for a museum tour ride. Today we are at a museum that a friend of mine told me about a few years back. I've always wanted to be here. I didn't know if I was going to be able to make the arrangements, but I made a phone call and Byron, the curator, I'm assuming? Director. Director of the museum, uh, told me to come on down today and take a look around the museum. So today we are at the Ranger, Texas Ranger Hall of Fame. And museum. And museum. And museum. (laughs) <laughs> and Byron is going to be our, our host here. He's going to to take us through this museum. We're going to learn about the Texas Rangers. And I've been talking to Byron now for probably a half hour. And the information he has about the Texas Rangers is totally fascinating. So let's get this thing going, Byron. Why don't you give us a little bit of history about uh, Waco, I guess, to begin with. Why are the Rangers here and Uh, Just a basic uh, story about what there is to do
0: and see here in Waco. Well, uh, the story of the Texas Rangers and why Waco starts way back in the 1840s. Um, There was a ranger company that was sent up here to explore the indian tribe up here the waco indians and determine whether they were a threat to any of the ranches and settlements like the comanche were at that point in time okay and when the uh, detachment got up here they found out that no they were basically agricultural indians very quiet peaceful everything else but one of the people in the company was a surveyor man named george e rath and uh, he liked the area came back after his ranger service was, service was over and actually platted the, the uh, site for the town of Waco. Oh. And so Waco was actually birthed in some ways by a Texas ranger.
1: Wow. That's why
0: his statue is out in front of the museum as you come on your way in.
1: Okay, I noticed him with his surveying equipment and some of that. I was wondering how that tied into the Rangers.
0: Right. Now, why is this museum here? Well, back in 1964, um, the they were building Interstate 35 through Waco, the great highway that connects Dallas with Waco and Austin and San Antonio. And the city of Waco wanted something that would get uh, visitors off the highway and into Waco. But they wanted something that was a high-quality attraction. You know, you go through the West and you see these things. Stop, see the live snakes or something (laughs) like this. Well, that's not what they wanted. They wanted something serious and of educational interest. So they went to the state and they got permission to build the official state historical center for the Texas Rangers in Waco, and uh, volunteered to foot the bills, to guarantee its perpetual operation, and that sort of thing. So that's why the museum, flash forward 50-odd years, is still here.
1: Wow. Okay, now give us a little
0: bit of history on uh, the Texas Rangers. All right. The Texas Rangers are unique in that they are the oldest statewide law enforcement agency that is still serving. They were founded as of next year. They were founded 200 years ago, and they have served under five flags. Uh, They were created under the government of Mexico as a militia organization to help protect isolated farms and ranches against uh, raids by primarily Indian groups like the Comanche.
1: So this was... Way back, you're this talking back. before talking,
0: Texas was a state, before it was even right. part of the United States. Right, we're talking 1823.
1: And were they called the Texas Rangers
0: at that point in time? They were called a lot of different things. They were, <laughs> call, <laughs> they, they were called ranging companies. They were called minutemen companies because, of course, some of the people in Texas that time were were familiar with the colonial American minutemen. They were called spy companies, which was something that. Came up during the uh, War of Texas Independence because they were mobile and they could figure out what the Mexican Army was doing at that point in time and other things like that. So they've had a lot of different names. The name Texas Ranger was really fixed during the second part of their history, which was what people would probably call the Old West period. Okay. Now, this happened, this began (laughs) in the 1870s. The Civil War was over with. Texas was starting to get developed because of cattle. There were over three million wild cattle in southern Texas, and they wanted to get them to the markets in the eastern United States and whatnot, so they had these long cattle drives. And as you might imagine, over a resource like that, people were having battles back and forth. Mexicans were raiding the U.S. side of the border to get cattle, and people on the U.S. side of the border were raiding Mexican side of the border to get cattle. And so they had to create a ranger force called the Special Force to try to quell what was rapidly becoming almost a battlefield down here. At the same time, you have the railroads coming into Texas after the Civil War, and they're building up towns like Fort Worth and Abilene and all these railheads that are gonna ship these cattle okay. out of here. Okay? But all these towns setting up, the first thing you have are the bunco artists and the criminals and the con men and the prostitutes coming in. And when those towns are set up, the first thing the mayor does is get to the telegraph and say, God, for God's sake, send us some help. Send us the Texas Rangers. So they formed a unit called the Frontier Battalion made up of five companies and those companies provided the what you know from the movies and televisions, is the old west law in the western okay. parts parts of Texas, and they provided the uh, law enforcement in these towns or counties that had no law enforcement at that point in time. So that's where all this old west lone ranger rest of this stuff comes from is that period with this with the frontier battalion and the special force.
1: Okay, I'm going to back up now, because you said they, okay. they've operated under five different
0: uh, flags. flags. Uh-huh. Okay, so we've got the Mexican flag. You've got the Mexican flag. You've got the Republic of Texas, because Texas was its own uh, sovereign nation for about 10 years. Then you've got the United States, when it was brought in as a state in the United States. Then you have the Confederacy. When Texas left the Union and joined the Confederacy, the the Texas Rangers still existed, but as a home guard that were trying to prevent hostile Indian groups from overrunning Texas when all the able men were off fighting in the Civil War and that sort of thing. And then in 1870, you have the United States admitting Texas back in and the Texas Rangers becoming a unit under the U.S. state of Texas again. So you have five flags, Mexican, Republic of Texas, United States, Confederate, and United States again.
1: Okay. Now, these are the Texas Rangers. Mm -hmm. So when they were operating under the Mexicans and under the Confederacy and under the United States, were they state entities or were they like federal
0: marshals? no they were they were state um, the militia that operated under the government of Mexico operated as a unit under the province of tejas, uh, as it was called at that point in time, and they were they were legally uh, legally formed under a Mexican governor named Jose Trace Palacios and Stephen F Austin then worked with them to get them to what they needed to be to function in the field. The first ranger company that took to the field at that point in time, they really didn't know a whole lot about what they were doing, so they took to the field on foot, led by fifers and drummers. Really? Yes. And my guess is that some of the hostile Indians looked at that and probably laughed themselves silly. You think? Yeah. Stephen F. Austin said this isn't going to work, and Austin was, Austin was a brilliant individual. He spoke fluent Spanish as well as English. His job was to settle people into Texas to bump up Mexico's claim to Texas at that point in time. And he combined the tracking and the field skills of American Indians who served in the Texas Rangers as Texas Rangers at that point in time. There were even two Indian Texas Ranger captains. Really? Uh, He combined that. With the skills of the Spanish settlers, the Tejanos, as they were they were called in Texas, and their abilities in terms of how of horseback riding, their equipment, the concept of carrying remounts of horses called remudas into the field, and how they would dress and the rest of that, with the anglo Europeans that were coming in that brought high quality Pennsylvania and Kentucky long rifles. And other things. So just like the American cowboy, it melded American Indian, Hispanic, and Anglo-American traits together to create what eventually, by the 1870s, becomes the Texas Rangers. So all of the drums and Fife boys, did they
1: become the Texas Ranger... uh, gazebo band or what happened to them
0: (laughs) i think they kind of faded into obscurity when they realized that really wasn't going to work but you have to remember at that time if you went back to the eastern united states all the military units had five syndromes right they all took to the field on foot with very few exceptions and so they were just copying what they knew from where they came from at that point in time
1: okay okay now we were talking about uh in the in the before the podcast started you were talking about uh you guys are coming up on your 200th anniversary That's right. And you had some things going on with that as far as book series and and some of those kind of things. So yes, tell a us com- a little bit about that. There is a
0: combination of both educational and uh commemorative activities that are going to go on. Um We'd like to invite people to look at two internet sites, if I may. One is Texas Ranger, all is one word and singular, dot org, which is the museum educational site. Okay. And the other one is the celebration uh, commemorative site, which is Texas all is one word. TexasRanger2023.org. Okay. Uh, that one is handling a series of galas and celebrations throughout the state that will take care uh, take place in that year. Throughout the whole state. Right. So we are the you know we are the history focus, and they are the s- celebratory focus for what what we're what we're doing in the, in this
1: are they going to have reenactments and that kind of stuff along yeah, with
0: it they will, and that's going to
1: cover a lot of time yep,
0: and it will. Because the rangers were, there were several things. Yeah, too much to get into. But there were, there were rangers were actually formed through three or four separate events in 2023, from the permission that was given to to found them to that unit taking to the field to Stephen F. Austin reorganizing them uh, appropriately.
1: Now, are you saying 1823 or 2023? 1823. Okay, you said 2023. I want to back us up a couple hundred years. No problem.
0: (laughs) Um. Well, when you work in history, sometimes you get the centuries confused. You know, uh, (laughs) I I can
1: get my name confused, so we're not going to worry about that. Um,
0: But it's a lot of fun. You are asking about the books. For our standpoint, back back, uh, about 10 years ago, we started a publications program with university presses and commercial presses to try to encourage people to take another look at it and write Ranger History. So far in the series, we have had, when we expected to have two or three books written, we have had 15 books put out there. One on Frank Hamer, a well-known Texas Ranger, and the man who brought down Bonnie and Clyde, was a New York bestseller written by a man named John Bosenecker. Another one which completely surprised us was a book which translates into English, The Texas Rangers, The Legendary Police... Group of the West. Well, I'm glad um, <laughs> you were able to understand that. I saw it, and I wasn't able to
1: figure it out myself. Well, this
0: was done by a good friend of the museum's, a man named Dietmar Kugler, who is out of northern Germany, and he di- he uh, did a book that hit number one on Amazon's bestseller list of books on the American West in Germany.
1: And if you're going to read that book, you either need to speak German or have somebody translate it to you as you read it.
0: Or plan to spend a lot of time with Google Translate. There yes. you go. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. Well, Byron, let's go take a look at your museum and see some of the things that you have. Uh, this museum has is, is got so much history in it and is quite large. So we are going to go hit some of the high points and and learn a little bit more history about the Texas Rangers.
0: Absolutely.
1: As we walk on in, we come on into the lobby. You've got a display case off to one side and a bronze and a map of uh, Texas, and then you have your... uh, Place where you pay, and I, I just saw the the price schedule. The, it was really pretty reasonable to get in. Oh, there we go. Adults are eight dollars. Seniors sixty and over are seven, and children six to twelve are four. And if you bring in somebody under five, they get to come in free. And then they have a military discount of a dollar, so it's seven dollars if you're military. And if you're law enforcement, you get in for four bucks. That's like being a kid all over again.
0: <laughs> it is. And since the museum opened, we've had close to five million people that have come through here in the last 50 years.
1: Wow. And I'm sure it's a high point for uh, law enforcement just because the Texas Rangers are so famous in the law enforcement end of things. Okay, our next gallery we've got, uh, we walk on in and we see uh, the Texas Rangers established in 1823. You've got a, a full-sized horse with a mannequin Texas Ranger riding with his, that's probably a percussion rifle, I'm assuming, but yep. with an old muzzle loader, a couple of canteens of water made of gourd, and uh, his big Texas spurs,
0: all decked
1: out the way a <laughs> Ranger should be.
0: And very symbolic of how the Rangers were made up of elements from... Three separate cultural backgrounds, American Indians who taught them how to track and survive in the field, Hispanic vaqueros who introduced them to equipment that they had refined uh, for use in the cattle trade, like certain types of saddles, how to bridle and uh, use horses at that point in time so that it would work in the field and other things like that, and Anglo-Americans who introduced things like those percussion rifles and whatnot that would help defend them. So really, like the American cowboy, the Texas Ranger is a melding of several different cultures.
1: Okay. And I'm sure that their firearms uh, changed rather rapidly as the firearms changed to revolver, to semi-auto, and and those types of things.
0: Well, why don't we take a look at one of our treasures that we have in the museum. Uh, It's both the earliest known depiction of a Texas Ranger and it's one of, ironically, one of the first oil paintings that was done by a professional artist in California. Not Texas, but California. Oh, really? Yep. The subject of it is a man named Jack Hayes, John Coffee Hayes, who came to Texas as a teenager and a surveyor. And Hayes uh, spent uh, his first few years here as a Texas Ranger with a company down in San Antonio, rose through the ranks very rapidly until he captained his own company. At the same time, he was doing a huge amount of survey work in Texas and created the maps that we still use as the base survey maps for a lot of Texas. Oh, really? Yep. He became a household name when, as the Mexican-US-Mexican War broke out in the 1840s, he wound up going to Texas at the request of the Army to teach the U.S. Army horseback tactics. Oh, How really? to fight a guerrilla war on horseback. At that time, the Mexican Army was probably the best equipped and trained Army in the world. They had European mercenaries coming in to train them. The They'd Mexican
1: even... Army. Uh-huh. I would have never, ever suspected that.
0: Well, something you don't see in a lot of the movies. Um, no. No. They used British Brown Bess rifles, which were the standard for military rifles at that point in time and everything else. It kind of helps explain Santa Ana and the Alamo. mm -hmm, As um, one of the Rangers put it, the U.S. Army kind of got handed their hat several times in the early phases of the war. So they brought in the Rangers. They mustered out of Ranger service, became U.S. volunteers like many years later Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders did. Right, right. And uh, Hayes was promoted to a colonel in the U.S. Army Volunteers. And they kept supply roads open from the coast to uh, the U.S. Army. They fought uh, guerrilla warfare against the Mexican Army and all the rest of these things. Well, the Mexican War was the first one in which reporters were embedded, like our reporters are now, with the military. And they reported on these colorful... Uh, individuals who they called highly irregular irregulars, uh, (laughs) who were not dressed like soldiers, who didn't work like soldiers or anything else, but nevertheless were very, very successful. One of the outgrowths of this was that a few military leaders uh, who became famous later on, like Ulysses S. Grant, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, these others, observed all these cavalry tactics that the Rangers were using and those become cavalry tactics during the U.S. Civil War. Okay. Hayes leaves the uh, army uh, after the, at the end of the Mexican War as a as we said as a colonel. He winds up going back to Texas, and thanks to the embedded news uh, media, he is a household word in the United States. Everybody knows who Jack Hayes is at that point in the 1840s. Okay. And um, Hayes stays in Texas for a while, but decides it's really getting too boring. After all that, it's getting too boring. <laughs> so he decided to go to California during the start of the gold rush. Okay. So he and a party of people from Texas go to California. He arrives in San Francisco and he says, Well, digging for gold is really the hard way to make a living. So. What he does is to say, I'm going to run for sheriff instead. And he becomes sheriff of San Francisco County and San Francisco for three different terms. The painting that you see in front of you shows Jack Hayes on top of Enchanted Rock, which is a large dome of rock that sits outside of San Antonio in the southern part of the state. According to legend, at one time he was out there doing some uh, surveying and monitoring the area, and he got cut off by a party of Comanches, wound up having to climb on top of Enchanted Rock like Moses on the Mount, and fought off single-handedly 80 Comanche warriors. Well, Wow, most that's quite, the, le- that's a-
1: quite the, the, the legacy.
0: Well, most historians have a little few problems with that scenario. But it's likely that he was cut off by Indians and wound up having to retreat up Enchanted Rock. Well, when Hayes got to California and started running for sheriff, he said, I need something to play on my reputation and fame and everything else. So he had a um, portrait painter, one of the first professional portrait painters in California, named Jewett, who painted a picture of him on Enchanted Rock. You can see a rifle that he was actually holding in the painting in the same case the painting right. was in. He had his Mexican War Kepi hat that he wore during the Mexican uh, War at his feet. He's wearing his ranger jacket, one of which survives in Texas, very similar to that. It was a style that was used by the rangers, a buckskin In this museum or in, is it in another in museum? It's in another museum, okay. we'd love to have it here, um, but that's, that's what it looks like. And this painting was also the first depiction of a Texas ranger. There were no photography at that point in time or anything else. So this is the earliest known image of what a ranger would have looked like. This painting hung up and down the main street in San Francisco when he was running for sheriff in the front window of saloons and stores and all sorts of things like that. And it's an it's an enormous piece of history, and one of the first pieces of political, political campaign propaganda that's ever you know that you ever wow. see out. There. And
1: now this is an original painting. This is
0: the original painting wow. from 1851, and uh, it's just it's just absolutely remarkable. It stayed in Hayes family for over 150 years, and finally, the wife of one of his great grandsons. Donated the painting, a rifle, and a couple of other items to the museum from Hayes. Um, How awesome is that? So it's remarkable. One of the one of the companion pieces we have to it that was loaned to us very recently by a uh, doctor who has been very good to us in terms of finding and depositing materials with the museum that are related to it is a... Uh, photograph of Hayes that was taken when he went back to Washington, D.C. to visit some friends. He looks a little bit older in this picture. He is older in this picture, and the interesting thing about it is he decided when he was doing that to stop by a photography studio in Washington uh, that was operated by a young photographer who was just getting started, a man now we know as Matthew Brady. The famous okay. photo- Civil War photographer and the one who took most of the known photographs of Abraham Lincoln. So he sat for this photograph, this black and white photograph, where he's with a beard and tousled hair sitting in a chair, almost very formal-like. He looks a little bit like Ulysses S. Grant in some ways.
1: <laughs> as far as and, the
0: pose and stuff, yes. Uh-huh. But... He sat for this photograph and Brady was apparently very happy with it because he wrote on the back, Colonel Jack Hayes, California, my personal copy. And which means that it stayed in Brady's collection for years and years and years, which is probably what survived to this day. But here in a space of a few things you can see. Hayes, at the prime of his career as sheriff of San Francisco and a former ranger, and here as the U.S. American legend. Wow. During the Civil War, both the Union and the Confederate Army offered generals' commissions to Hayes, but interestingly enough, he refused them all. He did not want California getting involved in the Civil War. Really? That didn't stop the Confederates from creating a confederate army of the west and trying to take colorado california and new mexico for the silver and gold mines but that didn't work out too well but that's another story (laughs) interesting let's go back here and look at another couple of items
1: um okay we're, we're we're skipping here pretty hard uh just letting people know we're gonna we're gonna hit a couple of highlights this museum is huge and uh, so there's a, lot more, there's a lot more to see than just what we're talking about.
0: This is a case uh, that has materials from the 1830s and 40s in it. and talks about early Texas during that time period. One of the treasures we have is a donation that was given to us some years ago um, by a gentleman that had come across a, a uh, Bowie knife that was actually associated with Jim Bowie. The man really? who died at the Alamo, yep. Well, Jim Bowie had a brother named Rezin P. Bowie. And before the uh, Texas Revolution and whatnot, he rode with his brother, Rezin, and also a Texas Ranger named William Y. Lacey. Okay. And they became friends. Well, after Bowie was killed, um, his brother enjoyed the fame that came from being the brother of the famous martyr Jim Bowie who died at the Alamo. We all need a brother like that. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, he had several Bowie knives made. Uh, and gave them to leading political figures, to uh, actors, one that went to a general and everything else. There's One of, his, one of those knives is in the uh, collections of the Alamo in San Antonio.
1: Okay. Well,
0: this one was gifted to us, and um, it's a remarkable knife. It has what's called a Louisiana-style scabbard, which is a very pointed scabbard on it. It's sort of the classic Bowie knife shape. And the handle is made of disks of dyed buffalo horn, about 15 or 20 disks of buffalo horn that were all carefully fitted. On the scabbard, it's engraved to Captain William Y. Lacey from Resin P. Bowie. Really? It's fascinating. Like all of our artifacts, we do a huge amount of research. And while this one has some holes in its background, one of the thing, interesting things is that William Y. Lacey was very, very obscure. And our research center people who are experts in it had to take some time to find him and to verify that he had actually served as a captain in the Rangers in the 1830s. Okay. That they were able to do that.
1: Now is the, the scabbard or the, the sheath for this, mm-hmm. it, it looks like it's done with silver uh, at the tip and at the top. And is that alligator
0: hide? No, it's not alligator hide. It's a it's a somewhat flaked uh, because of all the age leather. Okay, that's on, okay, that's on it.
1: I just was looking. It almost looks like the like the alligator yes, skin. It does. But I wasn't sure if it was yes, if it, it was weathered or or just uh, well used. I guess is maybe.
0: But it's a fascinating piece now. When Bowie knives came out, they became very popular. You know, Jim Bowie had a fight called a sandbar, a sandbar fight, that he barely survived. Natchez, but he, yep, uh, but he Mississippi. A, he had a Bowie knife with him, which probably looked a lot like our modern butcher knives at this point in time. Didn't have some of the characteristics, but it became famous, and it was written up and. Over the next few years, the idea of fighting with a Bowie knife became very popular to the point where you had entrepreneurs setting up Bowie knife fighting schools in cities that are a lot like karate dojos today. Really? Yep. You could enroll in a a course on how to fight with a Bowie knife. (laughs) The the British and Germans said, hey, there's a market for this stuff out here. So you had British in Sheffield, England, and the Germans in Solingen, Solingen, Germany, starting to mass manufacture Bowie knife blades. And they would ship barrels of these blades over here, packed in sawdust to the United States where they would put um, hilts on them, uh, grips for you to, to be able to handle the knife with, and they sold like wildfire. This continued through the 1840s, 50s, and into the Civil War. And... By the time that you have the Civil War, you had everybody had, that had their picture taken with some of the newest photography. It was holding some version of a Bowie knife in their hand because it became so iconic. But most of the Bowie knives that people think of aren't actually American Bowie knives. They were made in Germany or England and imported. Really? Yep. So international trade is not new. Oh, no. 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 <laughs> All right. Let's change in time just a little bit. And let's talk about two icons of the uh, entertainment industry and whatnot, Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. This is a case of artifacts we have associated with Bonnie and Clyde. Well, most people know about Bonnie and Clyde from what? The Faye Dunaway Warren Beatty movie made in the 1960s.
1: Or the podcast we did at the, or the podcast Bonnie and Clyde Museum <laughs> that we did in uh, northern Louisiana. Right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> or more recently, a Netflix movie called The Highwayman, which is probably one of the more accurate ones. People ask us what's accurate about the 1960s movies, and we tell them about the last four minutes when they're shot. <laughs> Most of the rest of the movie is highly inaccurate. Um, the story goes something like the fact that, and your, your listeners have heard this on the other podcasts. I'm sure you would like them to, you know, to well, well, tune you, in on that we, one, Definitely, but... Um, They, Clyde Barrow was a minor criminal who got arrested and sent to the state prison farm. Well, prisons have tended to be sort of finishing schools for criminals. And he was exposed to bank robbers and confidence men and all the rest of this, and sort of learned their way of thinking and their trade. Um, He decided, shortly before he was paroled, to show you that he was not a genius, uh, he decided to chop off his big toe to avoid a work parole right before he uh, work um, detail right before he was due to be paroled and uh, I don't know if I would have done that to get out of a work detail knowing I was going to be out shortly, but he did. Once he got out, he started uh, a number of raids on what we would call mom and pop stores or convenience stores today. He didn't rob very many banks in his career. It was mainly things like that. And the money, despite the Robin Hood scenario that's been associated with him, most of the money that he he took were from business people and citizens during that time period. He hooked up with a waitress from West Dallas, Bonnie Parker, who really didn't have any kind of a criminal record or anything else. And they started a crime spree that lasted for about two and a half or three years. Um, what enabled their crime spree <coughs> was the fact that they stole military-grade weapons or bribed people in National arm, armor, national Guard armories to give them to. Things like military-grade Shotguns, uh, Browning automatic rifles, Thompson submachine guns, hand grenades, things like that. When they were shot in their car, they found over five thousand rounds of ammunition in the vehicle. Um, they would go blowing into a small town where you had a when you had a town marshal who's probably driving a Model T and had a snub-nosed pistol. And they came in with military-grade Browning automatic rifles and whatnot, and it was no contest. Clyde Barrow always stole one type of car if he could. It was a Ford V8 automobile. In 1933, Ford released an affordable V8. Before that, they were all Packards and Cadillacs and things like that that the average person couldn't afford. Well. He loved these cars because they were reliable, high speed, could cruise for long distances. You gotta remember, it took 30 minutes at that time to put through a long distance phone call. Right. So the cops couldn't just be called and say, hey, Bonnie and Clyde are in town. You know, they, it, there was a delay to that. The Ford V8s were amazing. They had a metal on them that was actually as thick as a World War II combat helmet. Really? So unless you had a powerful rifle, it was probably gonna ricochet off or not do a whole lot of damage. Clyde Barrow was so fascinated by these cars. He wrote a letter that today is in the archives of the Ford Motor Company, which went like, Dear Mr. Ford, while I've got a breath left in me, I wanna tell you what a fine car you make at the Ford V8. If I ever have a chance to steal one, I always steal a Ford V8.
1: (laughs) We, We read that letter. They had a copy of it there in Gibsland. Louisiana, and uh, we read it on the podcast. It's, it's pretty entertaining. It's <laughs> remarkable.
0: And oddly enough, I've never seen that in an ad for a Ford automobile dealership yet. And why? <laughs> I mean, you know, take the, take the
1: local folk hero or whatever, and, and if anybody knew how to steal them and drive them, it had to have been uh, Clyde.
0: Well, their career, as your podcast probably went into, was ended by Frank Hamer, who was retired from the Rangers at that time, but they gave him a special commission as a state uh, penitentiary investigator. Okay. And he tracked them for over 100 days, found out through their relatives, who he told them, we've got, to get the, we've got to get Bonnie and Clyde off the street. If not, we're coming after you for aiding and abetting them, because they were giving them food and places to stay and things like this. And so he was told by one of the, one of the gang members where they were gonna be at one point in time. They set up the famous ambush, and uh, he put together a posse of Texas and Louisiana law enforcement a- agents and former ranger, some former Rangers, and they ended the career of Bonnie and Clyde, and that's about, like I say, the last three or four minutes of the movie that are, that are accurate. In our collections, we have some rare items. We have a sawed-off shotgun that came out of their car. Um, this was after shotgun. this mm-hmm. was
1: after they were shot. Yep. Because they also uh, had a lot of items taken that they left behind in yes. a couple and of different scattered. raids that they just barely escaped from.
0: That's right, and they were scattered. A lot of the things that were uh, associated with them have been scattered over time. One of the most interesting ones we have is a Browning automatic rifle. There are only 25 of this particular type known. It's called a Colt Monitor, and it was made for the police. And this one was actually used in the Bonnie and Clyde ambush. It was held by a law enforcement officer named Ted Hinton. Wow. Uh, And he used that during the Bonnie and Clyde shootout. Another kind of more interesting item we have is a Waco Association to Clyde Barrel. In the case, as you can see, there is a small uh, pocket watch, right? Silver pocket watch. And Clyde Barrow was arrested in Waco for a minor um, theft and locked up in the McLennan County Jail. Well, that jail uh, still exists today. Bonnie Parker came in, she had a pistol that was hidden under her skirt, broke Clyde Barrow out of jail. And on his way out, he neglected to stop by the evidence lockup and pick up his pocket watch. So that watch has survived to this day and it's in the museum collections. So we have Clyde Barrow's pocket watch.
1: This is just, this is a really cool display. You've got lots of different guns. You've got a shotgun with a stock that's cut off about uh, four inches behind the pistol grip. You've got a double barrel sawed off uh, shotgun with a pistol grip. You've got your... Uh, BAR up here the Winchester 1910 just the pocket watch a lot of pictures of the uh, Rangers that were involved and it's
0: just, just way cool Well, let's go learn something about the first Hispanic uh, Texas Ranger captain of the 20th century, He was a flamboyant individual who uh, had the nickname Lone Wolf Gonzalez.
1: Let's go find out about Lone Wolf here. (laughs) As we're walking, we're going by lots of just a badge display you got all kinds of cool
0: badges in here. Well, let's stop for, let's start, stop for Sorry. a second with badges. Sorry, <laughs>
1: I get distracted easy.
0: <laughs> we, we get more questions about badges than almost any other type of artifact, and they're, they are fascinating. What most people don't realize is there were no standard-issue badges for the Texas Rangers until 1935. When really? They became, when they formed the Texas Department of Public Safety. In the early days, ranger commissions either were not documented on paper often or they were sort of make-as-can-do th- types of things. The docket, there is a uh, paper certificate that's mounted in the center of the case that's fascinating. And it has, you can notice right at the top, the name Sam Houston, the Republic of Texas. Yes. Well, this was given to us by the family of a man who fought at the Battle of San Jacinto where Santa Ana was captured and Texas was basically signed over to the new nation of the Republic of Texas that was formed. Okay, All right, the man, Joel Robeson, who the certificate was issued to, um, was on the squad that tracked down and captured Santa Ana after the Battle of San Jacinto. He was trying to escape and he had ditched his generals clothing, and dressed as a private in the Mexican Army trying to sneak out of there. Well, he was recognized, and they brought him back in. Out of gratitude, they issued a Texas Ranger commission to uh, Joel Robeson, but they didn't have a Ranger commission blank. There wasn't such a thing. So they used a, a Texian Army commission blank, scratched out the words Texian Army, wrote in Texas Rangers and made him a first lieutenant in the Texas Rangers. Now, his family knew knew nothing about any of this. They came into the museum, had this with them, and said, you know, we had this crazy rumor in our family that our ancestor fought at the Battle of San Jacinto. So we put our research center people uh, to work on it. Christina Stopka, who's the director, and Rusty Bloxham, who's the research librarian. And they found this story, and we had them come in and said, You might want to sit down for this. And so we told them the story and everything about it, and they were just flabbergasted. They also thought for a minute and said that, You know, it, we enjoy having this in the family, but something might eventually happen to it, and they donated it to the museum. Everything in the museum is actually public property, it belongs to the people of the state of Texas. So now this will be in the museum. In perpetuity, and is representative of one of the earliest Ranger commissions, which was issued in 1836. Wow. Now, from 1836 on, all the documents or commissions uh, or enlistment blanks are all pieces of paper. But in the 1870s, with the creation of those units we talked about, the Frontier Battalion, the Special Force, The Rangers started needing something to show that they were state law enforcement officers. Well, the first badges came to them as gifts from cattlemen or other people that they assisted. And like this badge, which is in the shape of a circle with a star in the middle of it, and says Texas Rangers, and is kind of crude, um, they were gifts from these cattlemen or townspeople or whatnot to the rangers in the company. This is the oldest documented Texas Ranger badge. Really? It uh, was given to that particular company in the 1880s and it's made out of a Mexican eight peso silver coin.
1: Okay, I was gonna say it looks like a coin. Mm -hmm.
0: One of the big questions is why Mexican silver coins? Well, Mexican coins at that time were a recognized standard of purity. You didn't get any better than Mexican silver or Mexican silver coins. Um, Sort of like the old pieces of eight days, hundreds of years before in the pirate era. And so they made the badges, some of the badges, out of those. And that is a tradition that's continued to this day. They are still made out of today. 5 peso Mexican silver coins. Really, With the upper ranks having been made out of 50 peso gold Mexican coins until recently. But the problem is, now the coins are worth about $2,000 a piece, and the state isn't going to issue those. They issue gold-plated silver badges. But so few people ever achieve the rank of captain or major or chief or assistant chief that many of them buy the coins or the coins are given to them as gifts and they get departmental permission to have the badge made. Okay. And that's that's why you will still see some of them made out of the 50 peso badges. Well, after the initial badges in the 1880s or whatnot, you start seeing more and more rangers want to wear badges. There is a photograph showing about five rangers lined up behind um, the back, on the back of the case here. And you'll notice only really two of them are wearing badges. Many right. rangers still didn't wear badges.
1: Now and this picture must have been taken in the 1920s, 1930s. This because was 1933. I was gonna say we've got automatic mm-hmm. weapons and right. revolvers and all that. And this They're was, still dressed in more of a Western garb though. Yep.
0: And this was a couple of years before uh, the state started actually issuing badges. Well, from the 1890s through the 1930s, a ranger could wear a badge and it could be anything they wanted to. So you'll see the other badges in the case. We have ones that are in the shield shape. Right. We have some that are about the size. they are circles with stars in the middle. They're about the size of a lapel pin or other things like that. All, these, pa- all these badges have a documented history with a specific Texas ranger. Okay. And that's important. Because, you know, we want to warn your visitors and, or your visitors, pardon me, your your listeners and the visitors to our museum that these Ranger badges are one of the most forged and faked things out there. If you go on eBay and see a badge that says Texas Ranger badge, 99.9% chance it's a fake.
1: The Chinese um, have learned how to make them?
0: <laughs> the Chinese have made, they've made fake Ranger badges back to the 1940s. Really? Yes. And they're, oh, they're what's out there. The primary thing about authenticating a Ranger badge, other than it matches certain characteristics, is that you've got an unbroken chain of possession from the Ranger who had it, down through the family or whatnot, to the present time. Okay. So, if somebody tries to sell you a Ranger badge and they say, hey, this looks right or it feels right or it seems right or something, no. It's like, it's like what the Rangers do. It requires an investigation, and you have to document the history of that specific badges. badge. All these badges that we have here came from specific Rangers. Okay. But you have something that's interesting. The Ranger badge is the most sought-after badge on the badge collector's market in the world today. We have collectors from Australia to uh, Great Britain and Germany that want a Texas Ranger badge. And under Texas state law, you cannot buy, sell, or trade a current design Ranger badge without it being illegal. Really? Yeah. It's like eagle feathers are these days. You wow. can't. You can't traffic in eagle feathers. With the older badges, you have to remember this. Today there are 166 Rangers. That's all. Okay?
1: That's all in the whole Ranger Force. That's all in the whole
0: Ranger Force. There are 180 retirees who are allowed to keep their badges at this point in time. Going back into the 19th century, you have periods of times when you had as little as 30 to 50 active Texas Rangers. That's not a whole lot of badges. Okay, now is this yep. like
1: an elite force of state police, or or what exactly is the ranger?
0: Today, a Texas Ranger is the chief law enforcement, uh, investigative, and special operations force for the Texas Department of Public Safety. They begin as state troopers. You don't, although you could at one time. You don't get into the Texas Rangers anymore unless you have served as a Texas State Highway Patrolman part of the reason for that is they want those people to know the people of the state and they want them to know the state. After you have served a period of time, generally about 8 years, you can apply to be going into the rangers. In my time at the museum, they've had a they've had up to 200 applications for each available ranger really? position. Requires oral boards, written examinations, everything else. We get a we get a chuckle when a newspaper article says, rookies, Texas ranger solves case. That rookie ranger is so experienced by the time they get into the rangers, they could have been a police chief in a Texas city already. But they get into the rangers that way. Um, these days, it requires a very competitive mix of education, field experience, and smarts. There are three. There have been three rangers I know of that have doctorate degrees.
1: Really? Um,
0: yep. A little bit different from the old days. Can you read and can you write was one of the questions back in the 1870s. Now and it's 80s. can
1: you decipher DNA.
0: Yeah. Can you decipher DNA? Can you do this? That? Or there? They go through an enormous amount of training, crime scene training, technology training, and the rest of it. They have tools such as crime tra- crime scene scanners that will um, enable them to map out a laser grid map that we can use on computers that will show everything down to the size of two millimeters in a room and provide that kind of data to, to conduct an investigation on. Wow. So it's they are ranked up, up there right in with the FBI, Interpol, the uh, Scotland Yard, all the elite uh, law enforcement agencies in the world and we get a lot of those people in this museum coming through to learn something about their counterparts in the United States.
1: Wow. okay we were headed to someplace else you were going to show us as we're walking down this we see Bonnie and Clyde again in a painting uh, meeting their end and we're going down through a galley here that has a gallery that has some really nice paintings <coughs> a lot of displays. Saddles, guns, and now we're at Mm -hmm.
0: the Lone Wolf Gonzalez. Yeah, this gallery has things that are that pertain to specific Texas Rangers from the 1870s all the way up to today. This gentleman is one of the most interesting ones, and we just recently received a major uh, collection donated to us by uh, Mr. Stanley White and his family, um, who uh, his his parents and grandparents were friends with with Gonzalez, and some of his material came down through the family. Lone Wolf Gonzalez was a legendary character. He had a uh, Canadian mother and a Spanish father and they were both naturalized citizens. He was born in Cadiz, Spain came over to the United States as a child uh, joined sort of like the French Foreign Legion, joined the Mexican Army at one point in time and rose to the rank of a major in the in the Mexican Army. Left, returned to the United States, became a Texas Ranger. And, and what
1: year did he become a Texas Ranger? He Just so we te- get because this covers such a what?
0: Ranger in 1920. Okay. Um, he started uh, work as a regular field ranger and then was asked to go to the East Texas oil fields. In the 1930s, the East Texas oil fields were booming, and uh, you had towns go from almost no population to 30 or 40,000 people almost overnight as oil wow. was struck. Like the 1870s, um, The one of the first phone calls that usually went out was to the governor or somebody saying we're being overrun by criminal elements. Please send us a Texas Ranger. So Gonzalez was sent to work in the in towns like Longview, Texas and Tyler, Texas. which, you know, the whole skyline was made up of, of uh, oil derricks, just about. Okay. And he started arresting con men and criminals and people that were stealing what was called hot oil. Hot oil is where you, you uh, drive a truck up in the middle of the night and load up a tanker, uh, tanker truck with crude oil and drive off. And so wow. he started working on things like that. He was also assigned to run prohibition duties. And in the piney woods of East Texas, you had still after still after still with people making illegal alcohol. And so he had to work in uh, in all that. Well, he did so for a number of years, came back, and then um, left the Texas Rangers when a governor named um, Miriam Ferguson, who was generally regarded by historians as being corrupt, decided to kick all the Rangers out and put in her political appointees. And so he went to work for a couple of oil companies during that time, and then when they founded the Texas Department of Public Safety, he was invited back in, not to be a Ranger, but to set up the State Department of Criminal Intelligence, which was a fancy word for the State Crime Lab. He set up a modern system of doing fingerprints he uh, got all the infrastructure put up. Today, the state uh, DPS crime lab is one of the uh, best regarded crime labs in the United States. And it was all started up by Lone Wolf Gonzalez back in the 1930s. Wow. At one point, he, I guess he got tired of bureaucratic work, and he went back into the Rangers, and they made him captain of Company B, which was stationed in Dallas. And he did that for some years. Then finally retired, but even that wasn't enough for Lone Wolf Gonzalez. Lone Wolf Gonzalez went to, went to Hollywood. Oh. He was hired to be a consultant for radio, television, uh, programs like Tales of the Texas Rangers, which was on radio and TV back in the 1950s, um, and enjoyed doing that for a long, long time. And then he uh, finally retired and did not pass away until 1977. But he was one of the mo- one of the last of the old time rangers that lived to see the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame and Museum started. Really, so he was he was a fascinating gentleman. Out of this case, you've got a saddle that he used, commonly very fancy, fancily engraved. But the the standout are two. Colt nineteen eleven automatic pistols. These are the shape that everybody knows is a World War Two combat pistol yeah. type pistol. They came out in nineteen eleven. He bought these in the nineteen thirties and had them heavily decorated. They have the word
1: "heavily" was not emphasized heavily enough. <laughs> you might say this again: heavily decorated.
0: You got it. Well the Whoa. the barrels and slides are gold inlaid there are big letters on the ivory grips that say MTG for his his actual name Manuel Trezazos Gonzalez and uh, you'll notice too, they have no trigger guards. No
1: trigger guards.
0: That was an option that some people who use these pistols thought would just slow them down. So he did away with the trigger guards. You it might... also
1: seems like like safety might be a little bit of an issue without the trigger guard. Yeah, but maybe not.
0: Well, he was regarded as being one of the best shots the Rangers ever had, and it was it was pretty amazing. One of the other items in here, which is a federally illegal weapon now, is a. Billy club that would fire a gas, a tear gas canister, or a 12 gauge shotgun. Oh, show. really?
1: Yep.
0: Yeah. And they were they were manufactured and distributed throughout the United States. Now you can't own one legally. No, <laughs> was this
1: a was this a Ranger issued no, item? No. This is just something he carried.
0: All the stuff you see in the cases. Before 1935, the Rangers and the state issued very little, so the Rangers could carry pretty much whatever they wanted to. Today, in a way, that tradition still exists because they can use, from a selected list of firearms, they can use pretty much whatever firearms they can qualify with um, on a range Uh, according to their preference. Most of them use either the departmentally issued pistols, which are Sig Sauer automatics, or they use Colt or sort of uh, spinoff versions of Colt model 1911s for tradition.
1: Now, were these just decorative guns or were they actually, uh, (laughs) did he actually carry these?
0: Well, that's an interesting question. There are two types of Ranger guns that uh, fall into two broad categories one are called barbecue guns and one are called carry guns generally. Barbecue guns are ones that Rangers started in the 1930s and 40s to have made that they would wear, as the name implies, to barbecues when they were doing Rotary Club speeches or things like that, or if they just felt like carrying it those days. But they're also very functional, very uh, precise weapons that could actually be used. The carry pistols are usually undecorated and are purely utilitarian pistols.
1: Well, I wouldn't want to carry those anywhere because of the gold. In- I, I mean, they're too pretty right. to, to damage. Well, and carrying them in your car and getting mm-hmm. in and out, I, I just, to me, it would it would be a, a waste.
0: Well, today, uh, most of the rangers I've come to know over my time at the museum um all have more obviously more than one sidearm that they carry right and many of them will purchase something they particularly like or want and are allowed to use by the department and they will have engravers or other people do work on them not to the extent that lone wolf did right but they'll have very nicely done engraving uh, uh, done to the pistols and then they will proceed to carry those and we have both types in the collections Okay, but it's a it's another tradition like the bad like the circle star badge the ba, the boots and the rancher style hat that has persisted down to today over over more than a century.
1: Okay, now we also have a saddle in this case, mm-hmm. and he was he was a ranger in the thirties.
0: Right, were they using horses at that
1: time still? Yes, they
0: were. And are I, they still using horses? Yes, they are. In the 1930s, well, but yeah, let's go back to the 1920s when Model Ts were in their heyday. They right. were great cars. They had a lot of advantage in speed and endurance over a horse while they worked. Right. But often, they didn't, they didn't work. We have a wonderful picture taken in the 1920s of two Rangers and a Model T with saddles on the hood of the Model T because they weren't taking any chances if that Model T suddenly decided it wanted to be cranky and not work. Um, Rangers continued to have uh, horses made available at their headquarters into the 1940s, and some of them in the early 1950s, depending on wow. where they were located in Texas. In Dallas, you didn't need them. In Alpine, Texas, on the Mexican border, in the middle of nowhere, yeah, um, you'd probably need to have uh, you'd probably need to have easy access to a horse, and you'd use one very often. Today they will use them if they have to go into rough country that an ATV or a four-wheel drive can't go through, And but they no longer keep them themselves. The Texas Bureau of Prisons maintains a maintains horses, and those horses can be taken to them on very short notice if they have to.
1: Now are these horses, I know in Wyoming they have a program where they're rehabilitating the prisoners through uh, using horses as as a rehabilitation uh, program, like a hippotherapy or a horse therapy. Mm-hmm. Or now, does Texas have a program like that that they have resource to these horses? I'm not that really, are trained that way. I'm or? not
0: really certain, but I would guess they have something like that since they have the ability since they maintain and supply the horses. I would guess that there is some some parallel to that.
1: Okay, and now we got something else I'm really inquisitive about. You've got an uh, item in here that looks like a bull ring with a <laughs> squeeze-down handle. Now, what in the world were they using the bull ring that, that clipped in a bull's nose so that you could control <laughs> the bull or cow? That didn't go on somebody's nose, did it?
0: Uh, no. That was, uh, that, was free, that was called a come-along, and it's designed to go around the wrist. And it's something that would never be used in modern law enforcement today, but in the 1930s it was. And something that you could, you could put on somebody's uh, wrist and twist it until it tightened up and then haul them wherever you wanted to haul them to.
1: Oh, I'll bet. Yeah, All right. got a, it's got a pretty good-sized handle on top, kind of like a wing nut, I guess, is the mm-hmm. best way to describe it. And so when you tighten that down, those that nose ring just clamps down tighter right. on your wrist.
0: Right. Wow. And it's one of the things. Gonzalez. Was up against a challenge in the oil fields because they didn't have enough jails, and he was arresting sometimes 20 or 30 people at a time. One time he got very creative. He found one of these old Texas country clapboard churches that was between, it had trees on either side of it, and his solution to temporarily Holding those prisoners was to put a chain through both windows on both sides of that little church and tie them to trees outside and uh, chain the prisoners to that chain going through the entire church (laughs) until they could be picked up someplace that had, uh, you know, the capacity to deal with them. Wow. Okay. Let's go back in time a little bit. Okay. A name that everyone familiar with Texas knows, Sam Houston. All right. When the museum uh, was charged with setting up a state memorial to the Rangers called the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame, part of our name. Okay. um, A major collector of American portraits decided he wanted to make a donation of something appropriate to the museum. So he donated a portrait, but it was in very, very rough shape. That um, was of Sam Houston. There's very little information about it. The staff at that time, for whatever reason, probably didn't have the um, resources or a lot of time to research it. Well, a few years later, our collections, after I got here and uh, some of our other professional staff did, they came to to me and said. Um, We've got this painting. It appears to have a lot of uh, valuable historical baggage to it. We would like to research it, and we would like to restore it. Okay. So we started working on it, and we found a conservator, uh, which is what we call a professional painting restorer in San Antonio who was qualified to work on it. We put out a call to see if anyone would be interested in underwriting it, and a gentleman by the name of Fred Busey uh, called us, and he said, I have six relatives that were here at the time in the Republic of Texas, and I'd like to pay for the whole thing as a uh, memorial to them. So we sent the painting down there, and she spent better than six to eight months working on it cleaning it with uh, q-tips to get the dirt and the old varnish off of it and everything else. At the meantime, we started researching the painting and learning the background of it. Turns out, when Texas was admitted to the Union in 1846, it was admitted immediately as a state. And they needed a senator from the state of Texas to go to Washington. And when they did that, Uh, they selected Sam Houston, of course. Very well-known, one of the most uh, possibly the best-known person from the state of Texas. And Houston went to Washington, D.C. While there, he posed for a professional portrait painter and had his likeness done. He was so fond of it, in his papers he said of all the images of me that have been done, I like this the best. Well, it was easy to see why, because if you look at a picture, which we put in the case down here, of what Sam Houston actually looked like and the artistic license that the artist took, um, he's, he's really been made into a glamorous figure. By yeah,
1: definitely glamour shots
0: uh, <laughs> upgrade here. Well, it's, uh, it, was, it was quite a thing, but he had this painting with him, While he served in Congress in Washington, then it's a miracle it survived because then it was taken down, crated, put on a sailing ship, brought back probably to the port of Galveston, put into a wagon and hauled over the miserable roads that existed in Texas at that time back to his home where it stayed in his family for well over a century.
1: Wow. It
0: was then later sold off, it went to this portrait collector, and it came here. Well, the lady that did the restoration work on it did a magnificent job. First of all, she repaired all of the rips and tears in the canvas. She cleaned the varnish off of it. He is wearing a burgundy-colored vest, and you couldn't even tell originally he had a vest on. It was that soiled by candle smoke, lamp oil all these other things that had been exposed to over the years. So she cleaned the entire thing up, then re it, and then re-stretched the canvas to, so that it would be on the proper type of frame and everything else. So now we have a painting, and Mr. Busey bought us a wonderful display case that protects it. Now that painting will be in this kind of condition for a couple of centuries yet to come, hopefully. This is
1: amazing that you could take a picture that was destroyed to that degree mm-hmm. and have it look so perfect. I mean, this thing looks just like he got through painting it.
0: Well, one I mean, the, she
1: got through painting
0: it. One of the things that was still if you had ripped canvas and stuff. Mhm. One of the things that we tell school children when they come in, through in here is that you are standing no further away from that canvas than Sam Houston was when it was being painted. Wow! So you are actually in the presence of history. But an amazing person and a real treasure of this museum that we're delighted to have.
1: Yeah, this is just absolutely awesome. And we're still walking down through the, the gallery of, of rangers, with lots of different displays on, mm. on different rangers and their personal
0: items. Some of the items we get are, have a fascinating story behind them. This is a chunk of limestone. looks like a rock, doesn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Um, and, but it has, in the early 1920s, there were a couple of boys um, that were playing in a cave outside of Rock Springs, uh, Texas, which is again in the San Antonio area. And they noticed this boulder which had some scratching on the top of it. And I don't know how they did it. They must have had a a wagon or a horse or something, but they hauled it back home. Parents said, huh, that's interesting. And they took it and put it in the barn for years and years and years. Well, time passes and the descendants approach us at the museum and said, we've got this rock and there is this you know, legend that it may have had something to do with the Texas Rangers. So, again, we give it to our geniuses over at the research center and say, and basically say, What can you tell us? They look at it under polarized light and they can start reading names. They can also read a date on it, May 9th, 1878, that's inscribed on it. So, they start researching all of that. And they find out that all these people were in the same Texas Ranger company in 1878. Wow. They had probably jumped into that cave because of a storm or to spend the night or something like that, gotten bored, what is there to do in a cave, and started scratching their names and the date on top of it. So wow. the family decided they wanted to uh, donate it to us, so we have this inscription that we know the exact date, the exact place, and who the people were that was found just by pure accident in an isolated cave in the middle of nowhere in Texas. But it's a piece of ranger history that we've been able to recover and preserve.
1: And how many other carved rocks are in caves?
0: (laughs) Good question. I
1: mean, just waiting to be discovered.
0: Good question. All right. Would you like to talk a little bit about the Rangers in American popular culture?
1: Popular? You mean the Rangers had popular culture?
0: <laughs> they have been a focus of popular culture for years. <laughs> um, like, like,
1: like years and years. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, in fact, we asked people what the uh, largest entertainment franchise is in history. And most of them will say, especially these days, oh, Marvel, you know, the Marvels. Right. Else? They made 28 movies, Marvel movies. And we'll say, well, mm, not even close. Really? Um, the Texas Rangers became a, became a popular culture feature shortly after the Mexican War in the 1840s. They started writing songs. They started... Um, Doing novels. I was going to say like the the Dime Storm novels and and the ones
1: like on Buffalo Bill Cody. And
0: and all of those things. As time passes, they start making motion pictures. The first movie about a ranger uh, was called The Ranger's Romance. It premiered in 1910. And since then, there have been over 220 movies where a major character in it has been a Texas Ranger.
1: Now, does that count miniseries and TV programs? No, that's That's just just full-length movies. movies.
0: Full-length movies. In some years in the 1940s, there were as many as a half a dozen to a dozen movies made about Texas Rangers. Some of them were remakes of Zane Grey novels and things like that. Then you flash ahead into the 1930s, and, of course, you've got the r- radio as the big thing at that time. Right. And you see the Lone Ranger coming out in 1933 as a sh- what was intended to be a short-run radio program on WXYZ radio. And um, the program becomes an overnight sensation. It, there, there would ultimately be five... Voice actors who played the Lone Ranger. The most famous one being a man named Brace Beamer. How's that for a name? Brace <laughs> Beamer. And you'll recognize him if you've ever seen the introduction to the black and white t- TV program. Right. It says, Come with us to those days of yesteryear. Right. That's Brace Beamer's voice. They decided okay. to give him a role in that. Well, it's on radio from 1933 until 1949 what happens in 1949 television makes its premiere and the first episode of the Lone Ranger television program with Clayton Moore and Jay Silverheels as the actor actors come out comes out in 1949 and it runs really it runs for I believe it was almost 200 episodes on television So it was one of the very first television programs. Yes, it was. Right after they started making televisions again after World War II. It was one of the first television programs. To this day, there have been seven television series that have featured the Texas Rangers, from the Lone Ranger to Walker, Texas Ranger, to Trackdown, which is one no one remembers with a man named Robert Culp in it. To, I wouldn't know. Uh, to, uh, to many, many, many others. So they've appeared in ra- in books, song, radio, television, and movies. All, all of this being the Texas Rangers. People from foreign countries more frequently know about the Rangers from the popular culture than that. We had a group of bankers from Kyrgyzstan, which is one of the old really? Russian republics in, uh, in the southern part of Russia that were coming to Dallas. They found out the museum was here, and they asked their State Department handlers to bring them down to the museum. Why? Because in Kyrgyzstan, they were running both the Lone Ranger and Walker, Texas Ranger, on television.
1: Really? And uh, they knew all about it. So was the mask standard issue? The uh,
0: <laughs> no, no, no. The real rangers have never had masks. Um, Not even the lone one. <laughs> uh huh. But there is an interesting story about the costume too. Okay. Um, back when uh, Governor George W. Bush was running for uh, president, he went on campaign tours. Well, until he got to a certain point in the campaign. His security was picked up by his party, and they paid the state to provide security officers for him because he was also still you know, governor at that point right. in time. Well, they showed up in a little town. I believe it was in Maine, and they were doing a town hall meeting with the candidate and that sort of thing. So in come these Texas Rangers dressed in boots and hats and badges and everything else, and they're positioned around the room as security is. And all the news media run to the Texas Rangers. They didn't want to talk to candidate Bush. (laughs) They wanted to talk to the Texas Rangers, primarily, again, because of their position, not only in what they do, but also in popular culture. After that, there was a memo that went out that asked them in certain instances not to wear their normal clothing that they wear as Texas Rangers, but to just simply wear business suits. (laughs) because they didn't want uh, the rangers drawing more attention than the candidate did so you see these you know there are lots of these little stories and they appear over and over and over um on that let's walk our way around some of the items in the uh in the gallery okay
1: sounds good yeah
0: um this this is a case of props that we have from walker texas ranger When they closed Walker Texas Ranger, the museum had provided them with information on real Texas Rangers and what they do. Now, one of the things about production companies is they will often very diligently research things and then do exactly what they want to do. Right. Um, And that was the case with Walker and some of the others. Well... After the end of the show we talked to the production company and said you know there's only a handful of real items from the actual production of the Lone Ranger that has survived and we think we think that you might want more than that to uh, we think that you might want more than that to survive from Walker Texas Ranger okay so they sent us some of his clothing hats scripts, uh, fake newspapers, even some of his pistols which were cast out of resin, so that he could do his patented uh, you know martial arts moves and whatnot. It's you part- mean they
1: weren't real guns, like the ones that they use nowadays for props?
0: Only when they <laughs> some of them <laughs> sorry, only sorry. When, only when it was absolutely necessary at that at that point in time. But it's fascinating material. Now, some of the most valuable items, wow. most of the, some of the most valuable items historically we have, in this case. This is a case with a gun belt across the top of it and a mask sitting in a little protective box and a hat. And these are actually items that were worn by Clayton Moore during the Lone Ranger TV program. Every year they would make up a certain number of masks which were made out of black velour, not a particularly durable thing. Okay. And he would try them on and figure out which ones were comfortable. Well, they were shooting for 8, 10, 12 hours a day and he needed needed clothing and accessories that were going to be comfortable to wear for that period of time. The other ones were just uh, destroyed or discarded because they were not made as well. Well this mask we have is one of very very few original masks from the production that survived. So we have one of the Lone Ranger's original masks. The gun belt down below it, Clayton Moore had these made and he had um, four or five of them made. Well he made friends with a collector, a um, physician from Montana who for 50 years collected Lone Ranger material and he was uh, he got to know her so well in terms of her interest in things and her fan um, popularity with the Lone Ranger and the rest of it that he had one of his gun belts made for her. Wow. And so he had he had one identical to the other ones made and then gave it to her as a present. On the back of it, it's burned into the leather, Clayton Moore, the Lone Ranger. Really? So that's one of his um, things. The pistols are not original, but the belt is. Interestingly enough, when he was traveling through Dallas, Texas, one of his gun belts was stolen in the airport as when he had it packed as luggage. And would you like to know who they assigned to get the Lone Ranger's gun belt back? the Texas the Rangers, Texas Rangers. did they, they get got it his back. Gun belt back they did get yep. it back
1: but it wow. was fun.
0: one of the great thrills in my career was when i got here we found out that nothing had ever been done for him despite what he had done for the you know the popular image of the Texas right. Ranger and everything else and i went to our board and asked them if we could extend to him an honorary uh, board membership at the Texas Ranger museum and they said yes and I called um, I called his agent who put in, put uh, him in touch, with, put me in touch with his daughter. He was very elderly and not in good health at that point in time. But we asked if he would be interested in accepting a uh, a board membership for the Ranger Museum. And I talked to his daughter and did not talk to him initially, and his daughter said, went and you know she, you could hear him talking to her in the other room, And she said, Yes, but we—he'd like to, you know—he'd like to have you checked out first and make sure everything and rest of it. And I thought, okay, we're going to be checked out by the Lone Ranger. That's how cool is that? And one day I was sitting at my desk, and average day, and picked up the phone, and here is this unmistakable voice on the other end of the phone. Byron, this is the Lone Ranger. And he said, (laughs) "No, this is Clayton Moore, and I would be very happy to accept your." you know, your honorary board membership. So we had him, until he passed away, we had him on our board. And uh, he was a great man, probably one of the um, most honorable people that have come out of Hollywood. He started out as a stuntman in Buck Rogers cereals. Okay. And uh, when they offered him the Lone Ranger, he said, great, that's a gig that will put food on the table for a little while. He never expected it to go... For decades and decades and decades. But fascinating that. In addition to the the actual production material from the Lone Ranger, we also have a lot of premiums and aftermarket things from comic books and graphic novels to record players. 70, you remember 78 records? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. 78 record players. I hate to say it, but I had a Lone Ranger lunchbox like that in the late 1950s. Uh, I wish I still had it because they're Oh yeah. They're important to collectors these days. All and, this
1: memorabilia.
0: And people still love it. A uh, graphic novel company made a seri- new series of Lone Ranger novels and we contacted them and said could you send us a couple we'd like to add them to our collection. And they said, we'll be delighted to. You know, we've enjoyed doing that. We were surprised how much interest there has been in it. They not only sent us one or two, they sent us the entire series. Wow. And so we have all of that in our library and archives collections now. Toys. Children's boots, um, grooming kits, everything else. I mean, today it would be hard to point out something, except for maybe some of the Marvel characters that have been as popular as the Lone Ranger has. Wow. This case has some of the earliest Lone Ranger aftermarket um, sort of premium items in it. It has a set of uh, dolls that were made in the 1930s that look very much like they could have come out of a, of a horror movie like Halloween <laughs> or something. I mean, they're 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 pretty striking. Um, but this is the concept of what they thought the Lone Ranger looked like in the
1: 1930s when he was on radio.
0: Right when he was on radio. Wow. And uh, it was it was a fascinating you know fascinating thing. But the Lone Ranger radio program was national. It was as popular as in the 50s on television the I Love Lucy program right then at that point in time.
1: You got a Lone Ranger game from 1938, a set of guns, and you've even got an old radio like what they were sitting next to listening.
0: And there was a Lone Ranger club that they had. The they they're sponsored three. by Ovaltine. Mhm. Was it really? Yep. <laughs> probably Ovaltine <laughs> and probably several other companies. Um, There were three badges that uh, we know of that belong to this. Um, The Rangers were so popular because of that in the uh, 1930s on radio that the state of Texas, when they had their centennial celebration, brought Shirley Temple down, dressed her up as a Texas Ranger and had her at the fairgrounds. Really? And they had a, they sponsored a Junior Texas Ranger program with Kellogg Cereal, which got you a ranger commission and your picture taken and a little badge. Well, we shamelessly stole that uh, about uh, 70 years later and created our own Junior Ranger program and now parents can support the museum by paying a very small amount of money and they get a certificate for their child an oath of office they can swear them in and a badge and we list all the names of the junior rangers up on our website we started it not too long after i got here and today it is so popular that uh, we have thousands of names listed on the website, and some of those original Junior Rangers are now in their 30s. <laughs>
1: wow. Okay. Well, let's head on over to the next big thing that we were going to talk about, and that's the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame. Right. And
0: describe wow. to your listeners what you see on the ceiling. This
1: is a great big round uh, room that's set up with a th- as, a, as a theater, And all the way around, we have little uh, display cases uh, around this room. We've got several chairs, we've got a video screen, and then we look up. And there is a massive Texas Ranger star with uh, floral design around it. That's got to be, what, probably 20 feet in circumference? Yep. And uh, a great big Texas star up on top. Uh, you've got murals all the way around mm-hmm. with uh, different Texas scenes, as far as uh, the old days, the 1800s, I'm assuming. Uh, one of a rail, tra- uh, of a rail engine, a train engine. That's probably in the 20s or 30s. But most of them are the old West type scenes. Uh, this is a cool building, and then all the way around the outside of this, this is this circular room is in the middle with different uh, rangers on the walls, and different uh, displays. I'm kind of looking between things to see them all.
0: (laughs) Well, this building was set up in 1976 for the 150th anniversary of the Texas Rangers. Okay. And the state legislature set it up as the Hall of Fame Memorial. Uh, it has rangers that have been elected by the Texas Rangers themselves. We maintain the memorial, but we don't decide who goes into it. The actual and, rangers
1: decide. Yes. The now, do radi- the they do historical rangers. research? Is this voted on by all the rangers at present time? Or yes. How does and that work?
0: Generally, the criteria has been that they may it must have made some kind of a significant contribution to the development of the service over time. Okay. Uh, like Stephen F. Austin, who is who is in here, or they have to have uh, died in the line of duty under uh, exceptional circumstances. And we only have two rangers who have been elected that way. Both of them um, had saved children from uh, homicidal kidnappers and lost their lives in the process wow. of successfully rescuing them. Um but
1: was it the same incident or two different incidents?
0: Uh, two different incidences, really yep, and then there was another one who lost his life uh, assisting a local police um, department with a drug raid. Um, and the perpetrator uh, had actually for some unknown reason fired right through a door that he was standing in the back of
1: huh.
0: um, and uh, it it was it was very tragic. But it gives them a way to memorialize these people, and to also look at who uh, helped develop uh, the service, how it evolved up, and through the contributions that these people made.
1: And how many how many officers are in there are honored here in the Hall of Fame? There
0: are thirty-one right now, and for the bicentennial, they have not uh, inducted any of them for some years. And for the bicentennial, they may be looking at some other ones, and we will not know that until they tell us who and uh, how many of them there that there will be. But okay, there, and
1: how many total Texas Rangers have there been?
0: Between the founding up to today, we estimate maybe eight to ten thousand Texas Rangers. Some of them served for three or four, uh, almost three or four decades, others serve for a matter of a few days as needed. Okay. So it varies widely. We have And a,
1: you've got 31 inducted uh-huh. here. We so have, this is a pretty tough place to get.
0: It is. It is. Even tougher is the Department of Public Safety Medal of Valor, um, which is their congressional medal, what people commonly call a Congressional Medal of Honor or Medal of Honor uh, that uh, Congress awards. There have been um, five of them awarded to Texas Rangers, which is the most of any uh, serving officers with the Texas Department of Public Safety. And those have been uh, awarded, for, uh, two of them have been awarded posthumously. The other three have been awarded uh, for exceptional service, such as stopping a bomb attack. Um, and other things like that, but that wow. is very, very hard. There's one gentleman, John Acock, <clears throat> who has had a remarkable career. He's, he's been retired now for some time, but John, um, John was awarded two medals of valor. Uh, one was for, uh, being a ranger involved with that kidnapping where they got out, got the girl out safely, but the other ranger was unfortunately killed. Um, and the other one was a gentleman who was on that raid, assisting other the other police department. Wow! So it's fascinating. John started out as a uh, what they called a tunnel rat in Vietnam. One of the people that was sent down. Oh, he he likes
1: system. nothing but uh, <laughs> adrenaline rushes, right?
0: Well, not I wouldn't say that. But John's John is John's one of the bravest people I've ever known. He is not a six foot two ranger. He's a little bit shorter than that. As, which is one of the reasons he drew that. But he's done covert missions inside North Vietnam. Uh, he was an outstanding trooper. He was an outstanding Texas Ranger, and um, he, like I say, is the only person in the history of DPS to have been awarded two medals of valor. Wow. Um, they're exceptional people, men, the women. They also don't fit this, you know, fit the stereotype. The stereotype of a Texas Ranger has often been a six-foot-two white guy. And there have been numerous African-Americans. There have been two Hispanic chiefs of the Texas Rangers that I know about. There's a black Seminole Indian Texas Ranger. There's an Asian American Texas Ranger. So the Rangers today look look a lot like the cross-section of what Texas is like.
1: Other than they've got an exceptional bravery gene someplace in there.
0: <laughs> I would agree with that. And there are women, you know, they say, well, there's only one or two women in there. Well, there are women serving all the way into command rank, including one who is commander of the special operations group, which does uh, all of these special functions like the SWAT team and that sort of thing.
1: Okay. Wow. This is just totally fascinating. I had no idea what I was getting into. Somebody told me to to come here and take a look. So, is there some other things you'd like to talk about, or
0: well, let's talk about one more thing, and that's, okay. let's go over and take a look at something people are surprised to see in here, which is our horse trailer. Um, Law enforcement is a rapidly changing thing, and equipment comes in and is obsoleted and is taken out of service and everything else. And one of the challenges we have is to get examples of things before they disappear to the dumpster. Right. Well, this is something we almost didn't get. Back from the 30s through the 50s, they issued horse trailers to Texas Ranger companies to haul horses around if they were needed in the field. Some places okay. you couldn't get, especially in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, when there was no such thing as a four-wheel drive car, really. Um, well, we wanted one of these for the collections, but they had been sold off as surplus property at one time by the Department of Public Safety. And almost all of them had been used for time and then allowed to rust and run into nothing. Which out, horse
1: trailers are kind of known to yes, do. Yes, they,
0: uh, they are. Well, we, had, we found out about one that was in Arkansas, and we talked to the owner up there, and they said, yes, you're welcome. If you want to come get it, you're welcome to it. So our collections department people went up there and acquired it, brought it back here, and we had a car dealership that said, if you will tell us what to do, we will restore it to its original condition."
1: That is so they awesome.
0: restored this one it's a big you know it's a it's almost a 1930s streamline kind of design to it. It's a cool trailer. Mm-hmm. It has these teardrop fenders on it. It does. Um, it would hold probably two horses for a short period of time. The other thing interesting about it is how did they work out of these? Well they were the focus of camping out in the field and they built Chuck boxes to go on them, just like old style chuck wagons had. Now, where did they put the chuck box? And the chuck boxes were mounted on the back of them, and oh, they, like on the door. Yep, and they could be they could be uh, taken off and then used used where they went. And they cooked out of Dutch ovens and everything else. And we're talking about the 1940s and 50s, not the 1890s. Right. So uh, it was a, when this museum was built originally in 1968. They actually had a corral incorporated into the design where the company here could have kept horses here if they needed them. <laughs> really?
1: Okay. Now this trailer is is extremely interesting. Like you said, it's a 1930s. It's a metal trailer, maybe 40s, Mm -hmm. it has kind of the streamlined fenders like what he was talking but Mm -hmm. it's got a rail that goes all the way around it that you can tie a canvas top to. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's got places to lash the canvas down so that it doesn't blow off when you're going down the road. It's got canvas uh, drops that come down in the back so that you can roll those up to keep the horses cool when you're driving down the road, or if it's probably stormy or cold, you can lower them down to keep the horses shielded. It had the chuck box that went on the back. It also had a tarp that came off the side from some of the pictures I'm looking at that made an awning for the Texas Rangers to cook under and to get out of uh, the sun and the rain when they were set up. This is just, it's almost like a camper trailer that you haul your horse in,
0: and the thing I really like about it, it even has white wall tires. It does. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's it's a neat trailer, and then they've got a couple pictures here of it. One of them's being pulled by. It looks like a 1940s. Uh, I can't tell if it's a Ford or a Chevy. It's it's an old uh, business coupe mm-hmm. uh, pulling the trailer. They they didn't have a pickup truck doing it. Uh, there's there's two pictures of it. And uh, just pretty cool, pretty amazing. It's amazing what they did with cars back in the days. I mean, yes, now police is. officers all have pickups and that type of stuff. But back in the day, they were driving the old Model As, the old mm-hmm. Model Ts, then then the the Chevy Impalas or or the Crown Vics, or mm-hmm. everything was cars. And I don't know how they did a lot of their off road. Uh, investigations and some of that those cars had to have taken a little bit of abuse being used as pickups.
0: They did and the frames were a lot stronger than they are today and like we talked about earlier I mean the uh, the metal on them were thick enough sometimes to almost turn a bullet and so you had had all of that uh, all that going on.
1: So yeah this is really fascinating. This museum's really fascinating. And we've only, you know, I, I want to make an emphasis here that we've talked about a few things here. We have not talked about the whole museum. When we get through with the podcast, I'm going to have to come back and look at a lot of the displays that we've walked past. I would say if you're going to come to this museum, you need to plan probably uh... three hours four hours to see everything that's here and to to be able to experience it to its fullest
0: what we'd like to do is invite your listeners to you know to make a day or maybe even a couple of days of it in waco waco's interesting because it has uh, thirteen museums and historic houses in it some of them are very very worthwhile going to such as the dr pepper museum which is the soft drinks uh... museums uh official museum that's here in Waco and deals. I went
1: there a year or two back and very fascinating museum. I have not been able to get in contact to be able to pull a podcast yet, but that museum is definitely worth
0: going well, to. Well, we'll try to we'll try to help you with that one. We have a Cameron oh, We will be good. We have the Cameron Park Zoo, which is one of the best small zoos in the smaller zoos in the country. Uh, absolutely beautiful. Absolutely beautiful facility. Um, there are art centers here in Waco that are open to the public, such as the Waco Art Center. Um, and uh, you know, you also can't miss Magnolia, Chip and Joanna Gaines' um, operation here that looks at home improvement and all sorts of things and they have a whole uh... arcade of shops down there with everything from bakeries to uh... arts and crafts shops so it's it's well worth coming through waco and spending you know spending a couple days here
1: it's it's we we stayed at the campground out at waco lake last night and uh... very nice uh... core of engineer campground very nice people. I, I've I've enjoyed my bit of a visit here. And
0: uh... would you like to end up with what this giant display of faces is on our wall? Sure, we can do that. Um, we've is... got we've
1: got a whole bunch of uh, three by five pictures. Of uh, explain it.
0: All right. Well, one of the things we decided was that we needed to honor the people who are currently in the ranging, ranger service because it is not an easy service to be in. demands huge amounts of time and, you know, personal sacrifice. Um, so we constructed on a curved wall here at the museum a section for each individual company, and we display a picture of every serving Texas ranger on the wall. Uh, we try to change it out rapidly, There's a when duty stations change or new people come in or that sort of thing. We actually follow the Rangers from the time they are commissioned through their passing. When they are commissioned, they wind up on our website which is TexasRanger.org and there's a roster of the same thing you see on the wall here. When they retire, they go into a database, which is also a visual database with their pictures on it, which is on the same website. It's called Distinguished Service, and it shows pictures and a synopsis of each one of the 180 retired Rangers. Then when they pass away, all their information goes into the Texas Ranger Research Center. This is our library and archive. It was a gift to us by the Armstrong family that helped raise the funding for it to to be done and it is used by radio, television, uh, historical authors, everything else to do their research background on the Texas Ranger and it handles two to three thousand requests a year from people who think they had a Texas Ranger ancestor. They want to know what their service records were like or things like that. So we uh, present them, with. they will write to us um, if, they, if we do the work all by mail, there's a very small fee that comes into it, comes okay. into it to help underwrite it because we don't get any public funding for it. Um, and we will send them the information we can find, like the commission documents and any service history or things like that. Some Rangers, we have as little as a page. One document which proves that they were a Texas Rangers. Some of the other ones, uh, we will have five or ten linear feet of case files and wow. records from their career. So it varies greatly from depending on when they were served and everything else. The big question we get is do you have a copy of the list that shows all known Texas Rangers? Well, the reason the research center was set up is because, no, that doesn't exist and probably never will exist because records were lost in floods and fires. They were discarded by, Texas, by the Texas uh, state government at one point or another and the rest of it. Our research center is, to set, is set up to try to create records on everyone who ever served as a Texas Ranger to collect what is still out there and to be able to provide that to them and their children and their grandchildren.
1: Wow. That's an amazing service, I mean, you know, to to families nowadays and, and to the Texas Rangers themselves, your archives and your, your history aspect of this and trying of, to bring it to light.
0: A lot of law enforcement agencies have been looking at this because frequently when you serve with the sheriff's department or a municipal police department or something like that, 10 years after you retire, they'll say, well, What about, you know, what about Mr. Smith, who was an officer here? And they'll say, yes, he was an officer. What can you tell me about his career? And then everything goes blank because those, you know, there's not much that's there. Our job, and fortunately we have a small group of people relatively with the Texas Rangers, um, but our job is to make sure that they don't, that, that doesn't happen, and that they're remembered to future generations. And these other departments, very commendably, want to make sure that their officers and people who served are remembered. Wow. Um, so, a bit of a challenge, but one we're happy to happy to take on.
1: This is an awesome museum. I'm so thankful that you uh, decided to spend the hour and a half with me, or maybe even a little bit more today, (laughs) and take me through some of the displays. Like I said, I'm going to go back through and and check things out even better. This place is amazing. Uh, The guy that told me to stop here was not wrong. (laughs) And uh, I so appreciate your time, Byron. And the way I finish these things out, I say the world is full of wonder. And this Texas Ranger Museum is absolutely wonderful, but not only that, just the way that you guys have displayed it, the way that it's been brought about, is fantastic. People need to get out and explore, and everybody have an absolutely wonder-filled day.
0: Honored to have you here. All the rolling go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go?
1: For I'm a
0: young and a sailor lad And where am I to go? ¶¶